the meeting to order. We're calling the meeting uh, to order at 632. Uh, then we're going to start our commissioner roll call and staff roll call. So starting with Vice Chair Gabby. Here. Commissioner Jonathan sent in a excused absence. Commissioner Jenkins. Here. Commissioner Chloe. Here. Awesome. Commissioner Sree. I think Sree will be joining us later. Uh, Commissioner Christian. Hello. And Commissioner Gildas. Okay, so for staff, we have Parks and Community Services Director Lynn. Human Services Manager Jen. Here. Human Services Coordinator Annie. Here. Youth Services Coordinator Reggie. Here. And Human Services Coordinator Amanda. Okay, next up we have our land acknowledgement. So uh, Chloe has volunteered ahead of time to fill in for our fellow commissioner that was going to take up this role tonight. Uh, Chloe, could you take it away with the land acknowledgement? Of course, yeah. Um, so we acknowledge that the Southern Salish Sea region lies on the unceded and ancestral land of the Copes Salish peoples, the Duwamish, Muckleshoot, Oyala, Skykomish, Snoqualmie, Snohomish, Susquamish and Tulala tribes and other tribes of the Puget Sound Salish people, and that present-day city of Kirkland is in the traditional heartland of the lake people and the river people. We honor with gratitude the land itself, the first people who have reserved treaty rights and continue to live here since time immemorial and their ancestral heritage. Awesome job. Do we have a volunteer for the line acknowledgement for our next meeting? I can do it. Thank you. I was trying out the silence technique where if like, okay, if I just stay quiet enough, someone will say yes. Thank you. Okay, so do we have a motion to approve the October 24, 2023 meeting minutes? I'll I'll move the motion. Awesome. Do we have a second? I second. Awesome. Um, all those in favor, say yes or and or raise your hand. Um, yes. 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 All those uh, opposed, say. I abstain because I was not in the meeting. Got it. So, we, any other abstentions? And anyone that says no. Awesome. Motion passes. Reggie, are there anyone, are there any guests today? No, there's nobody. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. And with that, we have three special presentations tonight. The first presentation will be led by Communities Rise. Please welcome Brianna Jones and Kyrie Smith. Thank you for joining us tonight. 
Thank y'all for having us. It's great to be in space with y'all. Um, and I'm gonna test out some slide sharing to just share some slides with y'all that we have prepared. If they're not working, just let me know. Um, let's see, Zoom's been a little funky for me today, so I'll give that disclaimer. Are y'all able to see slides on the screen? Okay, great. I'll pass it to Kyrie to kick us off, but thank y'all for having us. Right on. Um, first, before I do anything, uh, I'm looking at everyone on the gallery view. Can people let me know if they can hear me? Okay. Yeah, we can hear you. Wonderful, wonderful. It has been an active weekend in the South End or an active winter in the South End. So there's ambulances, uh, EMTs, police cars, all sorts of fun things. Um, so I wanted to make sure that like it's not coming through too badly. But aside from that, it's good to see everybody. My name is Kyrie Smith. I'm the Capacity Building Program Manager. Um, and we're going to be presenting to you a little bit about Communities Rise and the work we do. But before I get a little bit more into that, I want to pass it over to, to the, our chief cheese, as we, as we like to call them. I'm historically, not historically, recently called the big, one of our big cheeses, we have a co-ED structure. So I'm Brie Cheese covering both my, my name and a pretty good cheese. Um, I use they, them pronouns. And yes, I do our capacity building work. I started with the org um, originally back in 2018 as an intern and then stayed with our capacity building team through our merger to become Communities Rise um, and get to work with our capacity building team and our cohorts. Now I'll pass it back to you, Ferry. Mm -hmm. And me, I started as actually one of the cohort members in our 2017 cohort. So I was originally a client before a few years later. Um, I really enjoyed like how Communities Rise approached like consulting and capacity building. So I thought to myself, well, why don't I give it a try? So I did some work with the district uh, or with the Seattle Public Schools District and with the uh, King County itself. Um, and after a little bit, I was like, you know what, I think I might want to do more of this work uh, going forward. So as Communities Rise had opening, I ended up applying and I've been here since. But that's a little bit about, you know, us. I want to talk to you a little bit more about like what we do and like about our mission. So we'll do, 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 do. Yay, the slides are working. We're crushing it today. Um, so you see on the slide, we have how Community Rise fosters movements and we're building power for communities that are impacted by systematic oppression. Um, and a lot of that's reflected through how we do our values, which is like cross-sector collaboration, doing capacity building and legal services for nonprofit and small businesses. Um, we want to make sure that we ultimately can create a more equitable system. How that tends to look will vary organization to organization as people come in, because our ultimate goal is how do we help build power for these organizations so they can even be autonomous on their own and continue to thrive and serve the community members that they're uh, meant to serve. So for some people that come in, that takes the form of like helping with uh, some board development. Sometimes it's like learning how to do staffing and recruitment. And other times it's just straight up doing executive coaching. But everyone that comes through Communities Rise comes through like with this mission in mind is that we're hoping and helping them to build their own power so they can be long term sustainable and continue to serve the people that they serve in their community. But speaking of the, serving the community, I want to scoot it over a little bit so you can see our team, actually. Um, do, do, do. So our team is composed of like, you know, roughly well, we have these awesome attorneys at the bottom. So we actually originally had 14 people, so, but now we're down one, unfortunately. Um, some of you may have met the other capacity building program manager, Zoe, 
in the uh, top left corner. But she has since uh, moved on for a different opportunity that she's like, it's too good to pass up. Uh, but she misses us dearly and still gets like lunch and coffee with us because, you know, aside from us being some very, very adorable people on this screen, we're generally pretty cool cucumbers at Communities Rise. Um, if I were to break this down for you, uh, this is actually a pretty good representation uh, hor uh, vertically or sorry, horizontally, about how our staff is broken up. If you look on this first row here is pretty much our capacity building team. You see me in the far right, you see Bree cheesing in the middle, and one of our um, capacity building coaches um, is Bridget. She's awesome. She wasn't gonna be able to make it here today, but she has told me like, make sure you send all the folks at the Human Service Commissions my love and tell them that if I can make to one, I might say hi, but they probably won't see me unless they get to send some more people my way. And I was like, okay, I'll let them know exactly that. <laughs> but in our middle role we have, we have a lot of our um, admin operations and development team. So everyone from our development director to our operations person, to even one of our other co-EDs, Annie, uh, these are all the folks that help like make sure communities rise itself stay strong so we can continue to work with you know the community itself and on the bottom folks uh, as well as like on the far right in the gray in the middle that's a mirror but everyone else composes of our legal team everything from doing our legal programs and like our legal clinics something that you'll hear me talk more about as we get towards the end to actually doing like our one-on-one -on -one, uh, legal consulting with uh, nonprofits and small businesses. These two new, like, lovely folks at the bottom are our two new attorneys that we've hired. On the right is Talia that does our small business. On the left is Livio who does our nonprofit work. But that's all for, like, our team. I want to make sure we keep this, like, pretty time conscious because we got some cool things to share. And we want to make sure we get into time for questions. So as we go through this, um, please do write your questions down because we will be answering them at the end. And, yeah. That's all I got before I switch it back to Bree. Thanks, Kyrie. Um, we like to share a little bit about our team just because it helps. I feel like sometimes when you learn about organizations, it's easy to miss the people doing the work, but we like to highlight our team because we get to do pretty cool work and it's through their effort and their the ways they show up. So it feels good to highlight them. I just want to speak a little bit to kind of the three key pillars of our work at CR or three key pillars of capacity building. Um, so how that breaks down is one pillar of that work is longer term relationship centered capacity building, which I would say is a pretty core value of all of our work, um, is relationship centered work. So this is where we do capacity building for the long term with organizations over a series of months, um, whether that be through our cohort programs, which we'll chat a little bit more about in a bit, or our direct legal services. Um, those are more our long-term approaches. Then we recognize that often, um, even though long-term work is really key to the sustainability of our orgs and their, our communities, sometimes emergencies pop up. And so you need something short-term or rapid response technical assistance. And for that, we have different clinic offerings either to support with fundraising, grant writing, or legal services, which we'll chat a little bit more about too. Um, and then this last bucket of work is recognizing that um, to support organizations, we aim to not just uh, lift them up and give them the tools they need to uh, navigate their work or to support their communities, but also to be part of advocating that the systems they're up against change to be more equitable. And so the way we do that is by working with funders or folks involved in funding to give feedback on how their processes could be more equitable, um, consulting with funders about how they're approaching their funding models. And then also we try and have conversations 
um, within our sector as capacity builders, especially within capacity building organizations led by folks of color, serving folks of color. Um, we do coalition work. Um, for example, we're in part of a group called Delta that contains some other capacity building organizations where we're chatting about um, not only what we're seeing, the trends we're seeing, what organizations are needing, but also uh, what our response to those things are, how we're pairing with partnering with funders to better address those concerns um, and just what's happening in the sector, keeping each other aware of what's moving in the places that we might not see from our specific vantage points. So within these three key pillars, we're naming that we do capacity building and we recognize that can be, oh, I think I went, oh no, we're good. Um, I skipped a slide. Um, we recognize capacity building can be kind of an inside baseball term and that everyone kind of has their own relationship to capacity building. And so we want to talk about what we mean when we say capacity building. <clears throat> Excuse me. For us, when we're talking about capacity building, we're referring to the holistic work that we do to support organizations, whether that be 501c3 nonprofit, officially sponsored org, small businesses, etc. Um, and fulfilling their missions and supporting community, which can be a pretty broad bucket of work because it, it is. <laughs> um, that can range from things like doing board development work, supporting organizations and doing outreach, supporting them in getting maybe their first grants or approaching fundraising or different ways of just sustaining the work of their organization, legal services, um, a variety of things, developing HR models and things like that. Um, but all of the different pieces that go into supporting an organization and providing them the structure they need or the support and connection to resources they need to support their communities and do the work of their mission. Um, what feels really key to how we approach this work is that um, our work is very community driven. So the work we do with uh, the organizations we serve is informed by the organizations we serve. So we see the leaders we work with as experts in their fields and in their communities and want to bring that to the forefront of how we're engaging with folks. We can't tell folks how their community is best served if we're not a part of their community, but we can provide them with tools or access to resources or reduce barriers to help them do the work we know that they are deeply experienced in. We also try and approach this work from an asset-based approach, knowing that lots of us, especially um, organizational leaders coming from backgrounds um, of BIPOC orgs or different communities, uh, impacted by oppression bring a lot of strength and wisdom from our own communities into this work and so we try and center that um, those strengths and how they show up in our relationship building with one another as a core uh, expertise or piece of wisdom in shaping our programs and we try and celebrate content expertise overall so CR has a lot of very talented staff folks but we know that we do not cover the full breadth of skills needed to support our organizations and communities and so we collaborate with partners or different consultants who bring in content expertise on things like HR development or finance, uh, finance and bookkeeping and work with them to um, do culturally informed best practices for our organizations we support. Um, I think I'll return to this question as we keep moving to be mindful of time, but I do, I am interested if folks have thoughts on what capacity building has looked like in their communities before with orgs they've worked with. And so if you want to sit on that and have notes at the end, that would be helpful. I'll move forward from here. Okay. So my slides were delayed a little bit, but we're good. Um, so to expand a little bit on one of our key uh, capacity building strategies is our 
we have our cohort program. So our cohort is one of our long-term relationship-centered capacity building offerings. Um, we work with eight to 10 orgs um, and offer them a combination of individual one-on-one -on -one monthly coaching where they work with a coach on specific capacity building goals, um, group spaces for those eight to 10 orgs to come together and chat about topics specific to what they're interested in. So that could be grant writing, fundraising, et cetera. And then we also offer stipends because we know it takes time and energy to build capacity. Um, and we like to compensate folks for the time it takes to do that work. Um, our cohorts are 10 month programs and we offer an org assessment for folks to process through um, some of the strengths they bring as an organization and some areas of growth they may wanna address. Then they set a work plan with three goals that they wanna focus on for their 10 months, the monthly coaching as was mentioned, and then the workshops and gatherings selected um, with the topics selected by the cohort folks each year. Um, we've consistently had a Seattle-based cohort that's coming to an end. And most recently we had our first East King County focused cohort. And I just wanted to share a couple of highlights from that group. Um, they wrapped up in July this year or August this year, excuse me. Um, and we had a couple of orgs who joined us. Three of the orgs who joined hired between four and 10 new staff and really grew their internal operations size. We had one org who moved into their first office space. Um, and another org who developed some key financial tracking support um, and like internal operating systems uh, and policies for their organization. And so there's some pretty transformative work folks get to do because of the long-term nature and relationship-centered nature of our work um, and the fact that they get individualized support along with um, the group spaces to learn about capacity building as a collective too. And this is work we hope to continue to expand. And I'll pass it to Kyrie to share a little bit about our clinics. Right on. And, you know, I'm very glad that Bree got to walk y'all through how that cohort looks. You know, we got two stellar folks that was in our Eastside cohort here on the call today because I saw both Lita and Priya pop by. So just giving y'all a little wave. You know, I wasn't, I didn't get the opportunity to be their coach. Unfortunately, they got posts from me. Um, that was Zoe's uh, group, but I got to get the updates and stuff during our staff meetings and hear how stellar everyone was doing. So it's nice to be able to see y'all in a different context as well. Um, but if I'm going to reframe us a little bit towards like our capacity building clinics. So we have two main capacity building clinics, which is different from our legal clinics. So this one is more in Bree and I's wheelhouse. So we have our fundraising clinic that's done quarterly and they're generally just about an hour and a half appointments. And the general goal of it is people come by and they get general fundraising help and consultation with like experts that we bring in. Um, all of these experts are volunteer, but they just all want to see different nonprofits across the states um, like really, really go to the next level. So they come in with all sorts of things, everything from fundraising strategy to donor mapping. Oftentimes people have never fundraised before and they just don't know where to start. Um, so they help walk them through like all of that process. One of the cool things though, is that it's been quarterly for the past like few years, but we, since the demand um, just keeps rising, we're working on trying to make it more, more frequent than just quarterly. You know, we're, our goal is going for six this upcoming year, but to be determined after I meet with the rest of the consultants to see how feasible it is, but we'll still be able to count on four, which is awesome. 
But aside from that fundraising clinic, the other clinic that we host that is really popular is our grant writing clinic. Now, this one is pretty frequent. It's a monthly clinic that people come through and they get one hour appointments with different grant um, writing uh, professionals. And the general gist is like people usually come in for one of three things. Um, it's usually I have never done or just found out about a grant. I have no clue where to start, you know, and then I get some general advice and advise me on how to do then there's people who come in for like reviewing some RFP. So either they have a request for proposal that they're about to apply for. They want some more like focused, individualized support towards like what they should write that helps align their organization's missions and goals and work with the actual needs of the RFP. Or sometimes people come by and they're like, oh, hey, I applied for this uh, grant, but I didn't get it. Would you be able to walk me through of like what would have made my application stronger? You know what I mean? So those are some of the ways that people generally come by. But the third falls into like the miscellaneous category. Like sometimes people are like, I want to do a joint grant partnership with someone else. Uh, how do we go about doing that in a way that like, you know, respects both parties and like is reflected on how we share the work on the grant, you know? So generally people come in for um, specific, hyper-specific miscellaneous odd things, RFP review, or just general support with like how they do their grant. But for both of these things, if anyone ever wants to join, they are open to, um, nonprofits, uh, grassroots organizations. So like folks who don't have a formalized like 501c3 yet, uh, small businesses as well. And like even just general groups of people that are trying to get something going. One thing that is like a restriction on our end is like where you're not able to have like government employees that come by it. What I will say though, um, if you are a teacher, for example, and you're not like the principal of a school, that's something that we're a little bit more flexible on. So a teacher that's trying to write in for a grant to get stuff for their individual classroom, that's some more we could work with. But the actual, like, for example, principal of like a school would be like more closer to the government entity where like we're not quite able to support as well. So that's what be that would be where some of that barrier would go. But yeah. And I'm gonna pass it back to Bree to chat a little bit about how our um, RFPTA works, so our RFP technical assistance. Yes, thank you, Kyrie. Um, so our RFP technical assistance work covers two um, core capacity building approaches we have, which is our advocacy with funders and our grant writing technical assistance. So our approach to RFP technical assistance is, um, is a chance for us to collaborate with funders around a specific RFP or RFQ that they're releasing um, to better incorporate an equity lens into their funding models, especially um, in situations where folks may want to review both who they're centering in their uh, RFP or maybe how they're framing questions on their RFP uh, to ask about information from the organization, um, how they're asking budget questions or leadership questions about the organizations. We will give them feedback on different approaches to make the RFP framework itself m most equitable um, and, and most accessible to the communities they're trying to reach with this funding. Um, and then our other approach for funder advocacy is doing implicit bias and equity trainings for folks who are making decisions, like the decision-making panels or review panels. We will work with folks um, around bias related to the specific RFP topic. Um, for example, we're about to do some work focused on um, food insecurity. And so we're talking with the review panel a little bit about what funding for 
um, or what the historical inequity for food access to different communities has looked like and how that may show up both in how people are writing their RFPs and who's applying and also who they may want to center in their work, um, both as a review panel and as the folks making decisions around the funding structure itself. Um, so we work with directly with the funders and then we have the second piece where for folks who are applying to the RFP will offer specialized technical assistance and grant writing support to those organizations. Usually a select, um, we will provide those services for folks who do not have a grant writer or other terms as determined between us and the funder we're working with. Um, but we will provide one-on-one -on -one grant writing support similar to what we offer in our clinics, but specific to the RFP itself um, and can offer a variety of support with that up to uh, our grant writing consultants cannot write the application for folks, um, but we will offer support, review of the RFP, a walkthrough of the RFP just to get more familiar with it, um, anything else we can offer to make the RFP itself more accessible to folks applying. Um, and then I think I pass it back to Kyrie to share about our legal services. Perfect, perfect, perfect. So our, one of our last things we're going to chat with you about is that we have our legal services. Uh, this tends to be something that people come to us quite frequently. Uh, and the way they're generally broken down into as into three things. We have our legal trainings, which are like one, like generally quarterly sort of events that are hosted that are geared towards like a very specific topic. Like sometimes I've seen like compliance laws, one of them, like general best practices, even like employment law. Um, and we ones we did was one on like even like storytelling. So part of that was actually a collaboration between the legal team and the capacity building team, where in the storytelling, you've got the legal element of finding out like, what are the laws around like, um, like, how are you going to be sharing people's stories, like even like media wise, as well as like, you got the capacity building element of like, best practices for storytelling and learning how to effectively garner like story for use for like fundraising, using for grant writing, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, we have our legal clinics, and these are monthly as well, but they're not co connected to the capacity building services. In these legal clinics, the topic can vary because each one of the appointments are one-on-one -on -one in a, uh, an organization with an actual attorney. And ahead of time, they communicate with uh, Amira, who's actually our person that coordinates all the legal clinics. They do a matching between like, what is the need that this nonprofit comes in with and finding an attorney that actually can meet that need uh, around that date. And then they meet for that hour. And then it's awesome. We've had people come by for all sorts of things from like contract um, to like finding out like board bylaws. It, the, the list just goes on and on. But things that we do not do is like litigation. Not, we don't get into that bucket of worms, you know, but general uh, consultation and advisement, crush it at that one. And our last thing that we do is we do like some extended legal services. And this generally falls more for like our nonprofits that are in our capacity building um, cohorts. And what it generally looks like is there's some ongoing topic that requires like more than just a one-on-one -on -one meeting. Uh, this is, tends to be what people are most familiar with Communities Rise in the past before we merged before between like the Nonprofit Assistance Center and Wayfind because that's what a lot of people used to come to the Wayfind section for was like either some clinics or like some extended legal services. What we are doing is we are revamping how we're doing the extended legal services to make sure that they are sustainable long-term and make sure that people are able to be served. So we'll hear some more feedback or we'll hear more updates next 
uh, year for like how that's going to turn out. But in general, we're pretty much restricting that one to like folks are in our capacity building cohorts. However, the legal clinics and legal trainings, just about anybody can sign up for. And yeah. And I want to be mindful of time, so we'll move to questions. And I'll say that whether you have questions for us now or have something that comes up down the way, uh, feel free to reach out. These are our different contact info um, or ways to reach our specific programs. Um, and we're happy to answer questions now. And then feel free to email us as well. Uh, go ahead, Sri. Hi, Bree and Kyrie. Thanks for that presentation. Very informative. Um, so I did, one of the questions I suppose my based on some personal experience and based on what I read in the report is is the the difficulty or the burden placed on smaller nonprofits for when they get funds for you know tracking stuff and the requirements and uh, the uh, audits and other kinds of things. It puts a lot of burden. I've talked to other nonprofits. I've I used to be on the board of a nonprofit working with homeless youth, and just getting funds and the requirements and following through them is very very onerous. So, my question is: you, you do talk about as a funder on the Human Services Commission. I suppose would be a funder. Strategies funders could use to make it simpler. So, if you have any thoughts or perspective on. How should we think about grants? What are some of the changes we could make? Or how can we in help the the nonprofits? Because it's good to get data, but we also need to kind of provide them capacity so they can produce that data without it being too much of a burden that takes away from the services that they provide. So I just wanted to get your thoughts and input on some of these areas on how, how could we do better. Thank you for yeah. the question. Oh, do you want to go here? Uh yeah, sure. How about this? We we'll do like a little bit quick answer, quick snippet. Um, but one thing I think I will actually encourage is like some like further communication, like past this meeting on that, because that's something that uh, has come into our sphere like a few times now. Um, and we definitely want to have more time to like delve into that with y'all if y'all feel open to it. But um, initially, my first bits that I've seen that has been really, really helpful and effective is whenever you're giving like a group, like from the same pool of money, um, sometimes even delegating a little bit of that money to like actually hiring like a bookkeeper that's like gonna be at least temporarily responsible for like, um, like just some of the tracking, at least like financially organizations um, or even building into like how you are doing the grant, like opportunities for them to partner with other people. So they kind of share that burden between folks. Um, that those are two things I've seen have like a lot of like really positive impact because it took a lot of the stress oftentimes off of like the one person running the majority of the organization as well. It like gave some assurance that like, the numbers would give get to the folks because this person has their books. Um, but that's one of my initial suggestions. Uh, Brie. I think the only thing I, I think there's. I had like 40 things run through my mind. I was like, this could be a, a way longer combo and I would love to have that. The The two things I'll say quickly are, I think a key thing that we are encouraging funders to do is to, uh, knowing that uh, the orgs that we fund are a key part of like having data about our communities and what's happening, compensating folks for that data collection, that considering that as part of the 
uh, deliverables and the work that is being done by the organizations feels really key because of how uh, true intensive of a list, lift that can be, knowing that that is part of their work, uh, treating it like work that should be compensated feels very key. And then I think as much when it comes to reporting requirements, I think that often funders find the most relief and the folks applying find the most relief when there's really a lean into the value of trust-based philanthropy or, and funding. I think that it's really key to both balance knowing that there's some questions and things we have to ask for requirements and, and for things often above our, our heads and also knowing that where we can, uh, having trust in the folks that we're, we, who are stewards of this work in our community um, and making the reporting requirements meet both the needs for data and also the realistic workloads of the folks that are doing the work feels like a, a necessary balance. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. I'm, I'm just going to chime in really quick just to say, yes, we have, I, I think this is a, a great potential opportunity for more conversation. And uh, Kyrie and Bree, I'll be reaching out to you um, soon and, and see how we can figure that out. Perfect. Looking forward Thanks. to it. Debbie? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for all the work that you do um, and for the presentation. I think um, this question goes along along the line with uh, the previous question about um, the funders like mm -hmm. the city of Kirkland and all the cities in the east side because we get together and we somehow have the same way of receiving uh, our request for proposals. And um, and we do it like in a in a group. So I, I wanted to know if you're working already with other cities in the east side about the work that you're doing, particularly with cities like us to incorporate equity lens in the funding models that we're having. Uh, I mean, what is what is what you do when when somebody asks you for that? Do you provide like trainings or 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 how how does that part work? With funders coming from you yeah uh we have done this work on the east side before we don't have that active any active work at the moment but have historically done things with city of bellevue and a few other uh cities who predate my time of the work <laughs> um but our typical process is um funders who are usually interested in are usually interested in getting feedback on a specific rfp and so um as we chat about what their goals for that work are we also allocate time um, for our staff who work on this project to get a copy of the RFP early to review and provide feedback on. Um, and then usually after we have time with it to do some review, we set up a meeting to chat more in depth about things we've noticed, things we think could be uh, edited, knowing that not everything is changeable that close to an RFP being drafted, I'll say transparently, uh, but we'll give feedback on what we think could be changed to make things more equitable. Um, and so part of it is making changes to the RFP itself. Um, we also will usually do conversations prior to an RFP being released about um, how folks funding uh, strategy is looking as well. And then we provide those um, equity, equity trainings for review panels as well. So we're looking both at the RFP, setting up time to discuss that, um, the overall funding strategy, and then how the funding decisions are being. Oh, so mm -hmm. it's a whole package. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, and we definitely do want to do some of that collaborative work, like that's going across the six east side cities, because, you know, we've gotten a chance to like, 
at least meet a lot of people and hear like how a lot of the systems are like different, but a lot of, a lot of the needs have are like overlap between each other. Um, and one of the things that I also have noticed about the East side that's not as present on this side of the County is that like many individuals and organizations themselves will cross through multiple cities, whether that's in like how they live or how they work, um, where that's just even like where their kids go to school. Uh, so the benefit for like one of the cities can be a benefit for all of the cities. Like if if there is like the opportunity for like more kind of openness and like the restrictions around those RFPs. But I'm, I'm we're aware that everyone has like their own like reporting needs as well as like their own specific rules per each city, you know, but that's definitely one thing that we would also love to see and be interested in um, as opportunities come up. Let's see. I cannot see your name because I am on my phone because my laptop isn't working. I do see your hand up. Is it Gildas? Mm -hmm. Hi, everyone. Um, um, apologies for being late. Um, Thank, thank you for this presentation. I think I was able to catch uh, uh, most of it, or what I what I hope to be most of it. Um, <clears throat> as as this project that you've done is is funded by by Bellevue, like would you say the message you're bringing to us is kind of a similar message you're bringing back to Bellevue um, in terms of like kind of helping them to adjust or to understand, you know, these kind of smaller organizations, what their needs are, what challenges they're seeing in terms of get, going after these grants, um, <clears throat> like locally? Yeah, I think a key part of what we want to share is both the understanding we've gained from our work with folks on the east side about what, um, what folks are facing and the core of our work is helping reduce the barriers that are there and so whether that be through partnership with funders or the direct capacity building we do we both like want to share what we offer both because we know y'all are folks in community and so if there are orgs you know who need the supports um we hope that you please pass our name along um but also because of the roles y'all play in funding decisions as well want to be able to chat about um the different ways we can make shifts in our funding strategies or overall uh, center equity in the work that we do to help support our organizations. Do we have any other questions for our fabulous guests tonight? Well, if no other questions do come up, um, we do have like our, our contact information and stuff that are on the slides out. So if y'all need to reach out to us individually about anything or even like need to refer anyone to our programs, the very, very last slide has like a full breakdown of like, you know, basically who to reach out to um, and what, you know, services to email about. Thank you so much. You feel uh, feel free to stick around if you want, but if you would like to head out, that's okay too. Thanks for joining us tonight. No, I I would normally stick around, but I have a class to teach soon, so I'm a, I'm a skedaddle. Sorry. So Annie and I are in the same room, and she was just trying to talk, and I said I can hear you, but no one else can. So give me one oh, second because no. she was gonna share something with Bree and Kyrie. Good catch. Thanks, Jen. Can we share the slides out with the commission that you sent to Annie? Please, that would be great. Okay. Thank you for coming. Thank you oh. all so much. Have a great evening.
All right. Have a good rest of the meeting. Okay. So our next presentation, second out of three, is from Indian American Community Services. Again, Indian American Community Services. Please welcome Lalita, Priya, and shoot, we talked about this. Uh, Ekta. Yes, perfect. Um, please correct me if I mispronounce any of the names. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, Jory. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Lalita Upala, go by she, her. Um, Executive Director for Indian American Community Services. You will have to excuse me today. I won't be able to talk as much. I've almost lost my voice, but I have both my team members here. I have Ekta, who works with our women's career services, and I have Priya, who works with our mental health services, both being part of our crisis services. Today, I'm going to um, actually share screen. Um, do I have that, Jen, Annie? Okay. You do, yeah. Okay. I will... Hopefully, this is going to go the way I want it to go. I'm supposed to say start. Yeah, okay. So Indian American Community Services has been uh, serving the Asian Indian immigrant community for the last 39 years. Uh, 35 of those 39 years were on a volunteer capacity. And really in the last four to five years, we have scaled up our capacity building. And today we have five people on staff and we have seven to eight contractors who are almost at 30 hours a week. And we have instructors and other part-time artists and professionals who do come out to provide support services to our community. Uh, today, my goal really is to focus on the fact that we are a one-stop safe space for individuals in our community and that we provide services that are intergenerational, that we provide services that are culturally nuanced, and we are run by the community and for the community. 100% of our board is from the community. We have individuals who are uh, from the LGBTQ community as well as uh, women on our board who have been in this community for long enough to understand the deeper needs. Our staff is almost all women. We do have two men, and we're going to try to work on that too. Um, so some of the work we do is we provide early childhood programming in different pop-up centers around King County. And one of our pop-up centers that we provide this that is closest to Kirkland is in North Bellevue Community Center. The other one that we do provide support services is in North Shore Senior Center. So those are both accessible to residents of Kirkland. And we provide senior support services as well as early childhood support in our pop-up centers along with uh, women's career services. Our youth program runs on weekend basis. And basically, the way we operate is us, our programs are centered on wellness. So we invite our community to participate in wellness programs for our seniors or for women in the community. For our early childhood group, it's about come join our play and learn 
programming. For our youth, it's about participate in our youth leadership, but that's really only one vehicle that we use to reach out to our community, to bring them to our support services, to identify deeper needs in our community, and then to provide those culturally curated, nuanced support services that we can as an immigrant uh, community-based organization. As an example, with early childhood, we do get some funding from Best Starts for Kids, and we provide developmental screening as well as therapeutic referral, along with weekly play and learn programs. Uh, the moms who come to our early childhood program also participate very often in our women's career services program. And with our youth leadership, uh, there's a lot of advocacy and civic engagement that our youth do. But this particular, the last two years, our youth have been focusing more on organizing ways to provide mental health support, mental health first aid, and how do we do that in a culturally nuanced way. And so 2024 will be the year for mental health first aid programming for our youth in our community. We do also provide uh, support technical assistance for small businesses, but going on to seniors, we provide a lot of wellness, emergency food assistance, rent assistance. We do a lot of support programming around transportation, around field trips for our seniors. We are very often stereotyped as an economically privileged community. And what we found out in the last five years of providing the different support services that we do provide is that the crisis rental assistance funds that we give out, 40% of those on an annual basis go out to single women who are survivors of domestic violence. And they qualify under the area median income in the low or low moderate income category. And so trying to really bust that stereotypical image of an economically privileged, educated community and saying, first of all, that's not true because we have within us several complexities. We have small businesses, we have uh, women in crisis, we have youth struggling with mental health, we have seniors who are isolated. We have seniors who need rental assistance. And so a lot of the myths need to be really busted around who is a community of need. Now, in terms of crisis services, really, uh, where we provide, we offer free legal clinics, which are five to six legal clinics a week, where we pay low bono rates to our uh, attorneys who come in to address any of our clients who are from domestic violence or immigration, and they can almost always build 70% of their case based on our legal clinics because they can come n number of times to our legal clinics. In addition to that, it's not only providing you a legal clinic, we also look at, do our clients need U visas? And a U visa costs anywhere from 12 to $13,000. For a woman who just found out that she has no economic means, there's no way to file for a U visa. So a lot of our community fundraising has so far supported us in those efforts, but we're finding that that's becoming bigger and bigger a place of need for us in terms of filing for that U visa and the behavioral health evaluation for that U visa costs $2,500 per client. 
So there are several needs that are built into bringing the legal status of that client back to stability. In addition to that, you have rental assistance, you have food assistance they need, you have vocational training, as well as mental health support. So we offer our legal clinics at zero wait time. Our mental health services, we have a network of South Asian mental health providers who are able to provide mental health support on one-on-one -on -one counseling on zero wait time. And I'll have Priya talk a little bit on that while I get my voice back. So Priya, can you pick up on this? Yeah, sure, Lalita. Um, thank you for that. Um, well, I guess Lalita is trying to um, encapsulate all the work that we do. And believe me when I say that when I first started working at IACS, I thought we were just another CBO. But the kind of work that goes on behind the scenes to actually um, help support our community, it's, I would call it a, a cyclical cycle. We start off with a, maybe a mom who comes in with a young child to start her early childhood program. We find out that she has issues with the child, uh, that there is some sort of a developmental issue. We actually end up then supporting the child, taking them across to uh, the specialists. We have a network and a cohort of specialists that are that are culturally nuanced again, who kind of support the the child out there. Or if the if the mom actually ends up being in us in the throes of separation, like Larita said, we have a legal service team that helps with her legal clinic, and then that leads to therapy therapists and we have a, a good cohort of south asian and culturally nuanced therapists who actually help support the entire family and not just the mom but also the mom and the child together um the, yeah thank you priya that's actually good um so so moving to what happens when a client comes forward requesting legal clinics coming with a history of domestic violence. Immediately, there's a legal clinic that's offered on a virtual platform. You get your, you know your rights by the time that legal clinic ends. You figure out, and more than often, your immigration status is going to get violated. If you get divorced, you have to go back. So that means that client goes back to a community and a society where there is going to be a lot of uh, uh derogatory uh, attitudes or lack of freedom to make choices. And this individual has given, paid her time to be in this country, to be a part of this system and also has the American dream, right? So how do we support this client in order to get that client to an immigration stability? That legal clinic helps us getting a U visa. We also sometimes often partner with API Chaya to make sure that if they cannot support the U visa, then we provide the support, financial support for the U visa, or they may provide that kind of support for our clients. So there's a lot of collaborative work that goes on there, in addition to figuring out how do we provide rental assistance to this client? How do we provide food assistance? Hopeling since COVID has started providing uh, produce boxes that are vegetarian after a lot of advocacy from different angles. So there's a lot of collaboration with Hopelink. There's collaboration with our cities on the east side to make sure there are rental assistance dollars available for this. Then it is about getting vocational training. What is the client set 
up for success in this situation? How can we best stabilize them? What's the lowest hanging fruit to get employment for the client once the U visa kicks in, if that client does not have a work permit? So there are multiple angles to that. Part of our history of how we really started doing this and moving from one legal clinic a month to five to six legal clinics in a week today, having a part-time legal assistance coordinator to having two people now working full-time, just taking care of legal services, a mental health coordinator who brings in the South Asian mental health uh, support providers. And how do you do that? Do you just pretty much connect them for one-on-one -on -one counseling? That's not what happens for us. Very often, we have a support group called Sati. And Sati actually means partners. So that Sati support group meets once a month in person, but they also have a WhatsApp group among themselves. So they are a great peer group to each other. The other part being somebody like Ekta from Women's Career Services will step in and will assess how best we can get that client employed. And so Ekta, would you like to talk a little bit about the work you do? Sure, Lalita. Thank you for that. And I hope you your voice, you feel better. Um, so my work includes um, creating, um, organizing the educational webinars and mentoring events for the Sati clients. Um, and we basically um, hold career workshops and also one-to-one -one, uh, counseling. So when a client comes to us, we a crisis client dealing with a situation in their life, we basically sit down with them and try to understand what they're going through, what their needs are, what their um, immigration situation is. Um, the Sati group helps them with everything. And um, we sit down and after figuring out what their needs are, help them with any immigration needs, with any vocational training that they need, any kind of, um, we also refer them to mental health counseling. Um, we uh, help them with upskilling their, um, you know, uh, upskilling them, putting them in job placements and help them with their career growth. So um, it's a one-stop, one um, I'm sorry, I'm just stumbling here. Um, um, so basically we provide a lot of resources to them and help them through the whole process. Thank you, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so a lot of work that goes into this is nuanced, innovative work. The way we provide support services to clients who struggle with crisis, whether it's job losses or domestic violence or mental health um, or small businesses that have not recovered from COVID, the support because we are from the community and because we meet the community on a day-to-day -day basis in five different pop-up centers, as well as in Together Center Redmond, where our main office is, because of that daily connection and touch point, we are able to provide support strategies that are nuanced. However, that means there's a constant need for capacity. That means there's a constant need for um, funding to cover our mental health costs, to cover the legal services, to cover the food, the rental assistance, the vocational training that women need to get to that point. And uh, I'll tell you a short story of uh, a 22-year-old who 
was kicked out of our house by the in-laws because we live in an extended families often and reached out to us through a family friend. We were able to identify that she took one semester of nursing courses in India and we were able to immediately put her into a certified nursing aid training, which cost us $800 and it took six weeks, assigned a volunteer mentor to this client who helped her by calling her on a daily basis, encouraging her to work through her certification, providing her support, getting her a library card, an ORCA card, getting her to the library in uh, Bellevue, getting that course really supported in terms of building confidence. And this client in the week 12 was able to take care of her certification exam, passed it, and we were able to provide her two jobs, one for the weekend in an assisted living center and one in a group senior home. Today, she has completed dementia training also and is on her way. Her goal is to really become an RN. But what we know and what we feel good about is we have given her that low-hanging fruit. She has self-respect. She has a place to live. She makes at least 35 an hour, which is great for eight weeks of training. And she has a potential roadmap ahead of her. And that volunteer mentor has not let go of her hand. So some of this work happens in small grassroots organizations at a very nuanced level. And we wanted to share her story with you. But I also am up for questions. I will just share a few pictures of our seniors gathering of women in uh, Ekta's program, where they are meeting a mentor and discussing their challenges and how to get through the vocational training that they need to, to find that stable ground of our early childhood program. Our youth doing habitat restoration in Kirkland. This is one of our mentors working with our clients and uh, we, the client's back is towards us, so you won't get to see her just for identity issues. This is a senior youth intergenerational program where we invite meditative artists to come to our workshops and we get our seniors and our youth together to create art, but it also gives them opportunity to have conversations because oftentimes our seniors complain about being isolated in their own homes. Their grandchildren won't talk to them or the grandchildren complain that the seniors only ask them about their grades and if they would become a doctor or an engineer. So the conversation in these workshops really helps provide those bridges to our seniors as well as our youth about how to have those dinner table conversations at home. But it's done in a very nuanced way, learning art together with an artist. This is a sample of our night market where our small businesses get to, uh, you know, have stage their products and meet community. And I think that was it. So I am open for questions. Lolita, thank you for that. Um, just wanted to jump in real quick to clarify a couple of num number one, define because um, there are folks here who may not know what a U visa is and what that means. 
Um, number one and number two, just to clarify, we're really um, focusing on the the DV um, supports that you're providing. Um, so having questions really right. surrounding you, that. Um, yes, this is pretty much, uh, I just wanted to show that we are that one-stop safe space, but really today sharing with you uh, the legal aid, the mental health, the vocational training, the rental assistance, the food assistance that is all needed in a DV client's uh, case when they come to us. And then how does that, there's legal aid is only one aspect. But if you let that client go after the legal aid is provided, that client doesn't have the capacity to pay rent, not in East King County, not all the way till Maple Valley or Everett. So how do you do the vocational training? And what if that client has a child with special needs? How do you provide developmental screening to that child? So there's it's a multi-pronged approach, but really for our crisis clients, it is very significant a need today. And the fact that from 2020, where we supported 17 clients to 2022 and 2023, where the numbers have gone up to supporting 38 clients just from Kirkland. That's, and that's not all of East King County representation that I'm talking about, that the need is huge to provide that kind of support. And U visa is the domestic violence uh, visa that a, a client who has a record for domestic violence can file for a U visa, which provides them legal status to stay in the country and a work permit. Now, very often, our clients don't feel like the abuse that they have experienced is enough to call the cops. If they don't call the cops, that record is not there. So some of it is also our clients step in to even ask for uh, help in what their rights are. How do they reach out to the cops? Is their information safe? Do they, when they, when they get separated, can the spouse come into their apartment anytime? They need to know a lot of rights. So our legal clinics also support, provide that kind of support. Thank you for that. And and then also I'm doing it too. I'm using the jargon and the acronyms. So DV domestic violence is really what we're we're talking about. And yeah, totally agree. All of those things are are interconnected in in the supports. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Annie. And, and another part is just because you come to this country with an engineering degree or you come to this country with a bachelor's degree on anything, it doesn't mean that you don't have needs. It doesn't mean that you cannot fall into crisis and that you will plummet in your needs, right? So I just want to identify that, that as a community, uh, when we get stereotyped as an educated community who doesn't necessarily have the needs, how is it that uh, in the city of Redmond for 2022, 250K was given out to Indian women who were clients of domestic violence who were in the low moderate income category. So it's because our clients are living on the fringes of East King County. And if they go further out, where it is more affordable, then they are that much further separated from their children or their pop, uh, ex uh, or their 
you know, uh, partners. And that means that co-parenting co is that much more difficult. It means getting to work is difficult. They need to have a car. They need to have insurance. So there's a lot of needs that get identified at that point. Any other questions for our, our guests tonight? We got one from Gabby. Lalita, thank you very much. I know about the work of your organization. It's amazing. Uh, um, you do a lot for your community. And, and well, thank you very much for all that you do. Um, I, I just wanted to ask you, on top of the barriers that these domestic violence victims are going through, do you also have the barrier barrier of language? Um, just, just wanted to know because many times, well, I, I've seen it that the spouse is the one coming with the, with the job in a very high tech or whatever, but maybe the spouse is having also the barrier of language. I just would like to know about Absolutely. if that is happening to your community and if it is also part of the problem that these victims are facing. Thank yes. you. And thank you, Commissioner Lopez. I really appreciate the city's support for the Indian American Community Services. You have stepped up to support us uh, significantly, and we are so appreciative of that. Uh, but yes, uh, language is a huge barrier. Oftentimes, primary education in India for a more privileged community is in English. Oftentimes, individuals who come to America may read English, may understand it, but speaking it and speaking it in a court or speaking it when you have your behavioral health evaluation happening or speaking that language to your children's educators, that's a very different forum, especially when your mental health capacity is diminished, when your confidence has plummeted and you feel so isolated in this space that your comfort is your language right? So the mental health providers that we have, the legal services coordinator that we have, they're all individuals who are from our community and who speak our language. And being able to speak our language, there's a body language to it that really provides the kind of support that an individual at that time needs. So absolutely, language is very key for our work. Thank you. Any other questions for our guests tonight? Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And thank you. Hope you again. You're you're welcome to stay, but if you'd like to get a good night's rest, maybe grab some dinner. Feel free to leave. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and thanks for the invitation. Thank you for having us. Have a good day. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay, this will take one second. Our last presentation, uh, the main event, if you will, uh, is our city DIV manager, Era Mascoro. Um, how do I say your last name? Mascoro. Mascoro. You said it right. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, please welcome her in sharing an update on the city's DEIB roadmap. 
Thank you so much for the warm welcome, Commissioner Hamilton. Um, I'm gonna set up my PowerPoint and I am um, talking to you from my office and they're vacuuming. So I hope that you are not able to pick up on, on that noise. I don't think we hear that, the, the vacuuming. Oh, good. <laughs> Can you see my PowerPoint? Yes. Yep. Okay. Well, good evening, commissioners. Thank you so much for inviting me to brief you tonight on the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging uh, here on after referred to as DIB Roadmap. Um, my name is Erica Mascoro, and I'm the DIB manager for the city of Kirkland, and my pronouns are she, her, ella. I work out of the city manager's office, and so from time to time throughout my presentation, I'm going to refer to um, my team as either the DIB team or CMO for city manager's office. Um, my team is comprised of myself and two other staff, uh, Don Robinson, who is our senior community engagement coordinator. And um, besides DIB projects, he also leads the neighborhood work plan for the city. And then the other staff person is Carmen Anderson, our administrative staff person who um, she she's essential to me in helping me manage our library board and our cultural arts commission. And she also manages all contracts for the CMO. I work under the direction of Mr. Kurt Triplett, our city manager, and my direct supervisor is Jim, Jim Lopez, uh, who's the deputy city manager of external affairs. And so tonight, um, in giving you this DIB update, I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction on our roadmap, some background. And then from there, I'm going to skim through all the objective highlights. There are 68 objectives, so it's a quite lengthy presentation, and I won't be able to um, even dab into those that I'm highlighting in order to just give you a general outlook of of um, the DIB work, but um, after I'm done presenting, I will be uh, putting on the chat the link to our uh, city council packet for September 19th, where I presented the annual report to city council, and that gives you a little bit more detail on each of the objectives. And then, of course, if you're interested in hearing more detail in a specific objective, um, I, I can come back um, if you'd like. And so uh, after the ob objective highlights, I'm gonna do a quick uh, Q&A. Hopefully we have time for that. So um, to get started, I'm gonna review the DIB roadmap structure. The roadmap is a five-year roadmap in a, that is a living document and was adopted on July 5th, 2022. Uh, this is the first iter iteration of the roadmap. And like I said, it includes 68 objectives, uh, including objective 15.2, which I always like to highlight. Uh, this objective is uh, titled Ongoing Feedback and Update Process for the Roadmap. 
I like to highlight it because this particular objective allows for council, staff, or community members to uh, bring in their own ideas about the roadmap um, so that we can actually modify or add objectives to the roadmap that are uh, of interest to the community staff or council. The organizational structure of the document has three main components, uh, goal area, goal, and objective. And each objective has actionable items. And here on the slide, you can see the six goal areas. And so I'm going to be going through those during the highlights as well. So continuing uh, with the roadmap structure, the roadmap, like I said, it's action oriented, uh, it's organizational wide, and um, internally it is centered in the city manager's office, the highest level of leadership, and externally it's centered on our community. The work of the roadmap is ongoing and will never end. Oh, and I think I missed going over the status. And so currently out of the 68 objectives, we've completed 37. We have 24 that are in progress and seven pending. Um, the, the completed objectives, they, they are completed as far as the action that was detailed on the first iteration of the roadmap, but that doesn't mean that there's no continuing work. And so um, later I will go through our, um, the way we're going to be taking a look at each of the completed objectives and then from there determining if they are truly complete or if they are a, if the actionable item was just a small portion of the actual work that the objective entails. So um, also before I go on, I like to thank the all the directors and their staff for their continual enthusiasm on the DIB work. Um, I, again, I have a small team. And so between the three of us, it would be impossible to actually do the work on our own. So having the support of leadership and uh, being able to work with the staff in order to roll out the, the roadmap is uh, very important. And so I never want to um, present on the roadmap as, as if it's all my own work because it really is a whole organization effort. And so with that, um, I'm going to get started on the update. Um, and even though today I'm focusing on the work that is strictly on the roadmap, there's a lot of other DIB initiatives that the departments work on on their own. And um, I just wanted to make sure that you also knew that and that you, um, through that awareness, just know that I'm going to be focusing on only the objectives. So the first goal area is leadership operations and services. Um, let me click on to the objectives. So uh, highlighting on 
goal one, I'm going to highlight objective 1.6, which is decreasing barriers to serving on city council boards and commissions. I have been participating in discussions with the salary commission who typically meet only once a year. But in the fall of 2022, they decided that they would meet several times in consideration of updating the council's salary to make it possible for underrepresented uh, community members to become council members. The Salary Commission has also been very thoughtful in discussing other elements that might make a non-white, non-affluent uh, person feel marginalized in participating as a council member. The Salary Commission is scheduled to meet uh, later this month, and they will be finalizing the next council's salary. Under this same objective, I have also been working closely with the city clerk's office to apply an equity review on the boards and commissions recruiting process. Uh, we are currently working on an interview process of our current uh, BIPOC immig immigrant LGBTQIA plus board and commissioners in order to learn um, from them about the elements in the recruitment process that we might need to change or, or add something in order to make it more equitable and make people feel welcome. The next goal on number two, um, here I wanted to highlight objective 2.2, uh, community, the community responder program now known as the Regional Crisis Response, the RACER Agency in partnership with four other cities, which are Bothell, Kenmore, Lake Forest, and Shoreline. And um, the RACER team will provide a consolidated and standardized regional mobile crisis response that services the five region, the five city region. Um, the, the crisis services provided by RACER begin with a person-centered approach focusing on compassionate and immediate crisis response, de-escalation, resource referral, and follow-up tailored to the specific needs of those experiencing behavioral health uh, challenges. Um, the next highlight here is objective 2.4, school resource officer program evaluation. And so for this objective, it's marked as complete because starting September 2023, Kirkland schools no longer have SROs, uh, school, school resource officers assigned to specific schools. The new program features three community resource officers, um, often called CROs, and they are the first contact point of contact between the police department and the school district on law enforcement issues. Uh, the CROs are not stationed in any one school, but will be available to respond to a school whenever needed. And um, I have had continued communication with Lake Washington School District around this topic. And um, currently, they're working with a community group. They, they call the group Community Connectors. And um, actually, tomorrow night, I, I will be at that meeting. And so the, the group is comprised of parents and school board members and um, DEI staff. And we're just sitting around the table really discussing 
um, the impact of now our SROs and the way that they are working with the schools. And once they enter the schools, what it is that they're doing there um, in, in response to um, either calls from the schools and or parents. And so now I'm going to move to goal three. Um, here I'm highlighting objective 3.3, welcoming America certification. And I'm starting off uh, this highlight by talking a little bit about our city hall for all event. Uh, we had a great turnout this year of approximately 3,000 people who stopped by throughout the day. Uh, this event is a city annual welcoming week event. Uh, we had our podcast crew there, um, our ever popular Truckapalooza, or others call it uh, Touch a Truck, uh, a local business pop-up market, and department informational booths. Indoors uh, at City Hall, we had tours happen happening simultaneously in Russian, Mandarin, Cantonese, Spanish, Portuguese, and English. And um, we hosted our first City of Kirkland sensory room for children and adults with autism and other special needs to provide a quiet, cool, therapeutic uh, space to rest. Uh, continuing with this same objective, um, this year's Welcoming Week event was special to the DIB team because we have begun our process to obtain the Welcoming America certification. Uh, here on this slide, you can see the Welcoming America list of cities across the U.S. that have been designated as welcoming. And on the far right, uh, the cities that are in progress to obtain the certification. Uh, the city has completed our self-assessment document and have submitted it earlier this month. And then our next step is our audit that is scheduled for December, depending on the availability of Welcoming America staff and our community partners. Uh, once we pass the audit, the city of Kirkland will be the first city designated as a welcoming city in the state of Washington. Now, uh, moving on to goal area two, plans, policies, and budgets. Um, here, I want to highlight objective 4.1, the equity impact assessment tool. This tool is a list of DIB-related and or Title VI-related questions to help staff apply the DIB lens to their work. The tool has been uh, completed. Um, it's in an electronic format that will allow the information that staff will, will input into the form um, in order for the DIB team and the finance team to capture um, that data. Uh, the next step is to run tests of the, of the tool with staff and community partners before rolling it out to our directors. And then once we have the input from the directors and their modifications have been implemented to the tool, we'll roll it out to staff across the organization, um, including a, a training program in how to use the tool. 
Also uh, here, I wanna highlight objective 4.2, the comprehensive plan and other long range planning process. Um, our comp team is in the middle of their community engagement process. And last fall, they completed their equity review on the, on the comp plan. And then they also um, completed a community engagement plan uh, that is guiding their work out in the community. And so now we're moving on to goal area five. Here, I'd like to highlight objective 5.2 city work program. Our city manager made inclusive and equitable community our first goal in the foundation for the future of the city's work program. Um, I wanted to highlight because I, I find that important in showing that leadership has full buy-in into the DIB work. And then next in goal six, um, I wanna highlight the work that the CMO is doing with our finance team to create a shift in how and where the city is spending money cre by creating measures to establish baselines that will help us make sure that the needle's moving towards a more equitable community. And so uh, with that, uh, we're going to go into goal area three, workplace and workforce. And here on the photo is our HR team uh, that is working towards uh, ensuring that our future workforce brings in diversity, that our current workforce has the training and career development needed to continue growing and that we capture and create change to make the city of Kirkland a workplace we all love. Um, here with the, with the next goal areas, so we have goal seven here. Oh, sorry about that. Goal eight, this is a continuation of all the HR objectives. And on the photos, what you're seeing are different staff internal events. And then also goal nine, um, all this is part of the work that HR is doing. I'm gonna go ahead and move on without highlighting any of these just so that I can get through um, more of the objectives. Um, now we're moving on to goal area for community partners. And so here goal 10, I'm, I'm going to highlight uh, 10.1 equity and contracting policy and program. In the first three quarters of this year, we were to complete three actions to advance this objective. The first was uh, the CMO finance and IT work together to establish a process to track subcontract subcontractor payments in Munis. And then second, uh, the CMO and finance performed an equity review of the procurement manual, which resulted in key changes to established processes and the addition of standalone equity, a standalone equity section. And then third, the city in partnership with the state office of minority and women businesses enterprise or otherwise known as OMWBE, um, we hosted three training sessions focused on teaching women and minority business owners about the city's procurement process. 
the economic development initiatives that focus on small businesses and the benefits of obtaining their OMWBE certification. The sessions were held this past June, July, and August and were well attended with 30 business owners from Kirkland and the East Side. And now goal 12, uh, I'm gonna highlight objective 12.1, relationship building with community groups. Um, this summer, the city really connected with the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and asexual plus or LGBTQIA plus here on after. Uh, the community groups in the region through um, the funding and support from our council for the installation of the city's first Pride Crosswalk. Our ribbon cutting event was attended by LGBTQIA plus community groups, residents and elected officials from all levels of government to stand in solidarity with our council and staff in supporting and making our LGBTQIA plus community feel welcome. And now we're on goal area five, communication and education. Um, here in goal 13, highlighting objectives 13.1, uh, .2 and 0.3 together as the work of each of these objectives dovetails into one another. The DIB team is working on a language access plan um, through leadership guidance that will be linked to the ongoing work that uh, takes place through the Title VI compliance. Uh, the, DBE, the DEIB team is using the language access tool provided from the U.S. Department of Justice to ensure that the link to Title VI is there. The employee bilingual pay program will be a component of the language access plan. And the DIB team has just completed developing the first draft of the survey for staff to learn about um, staff's language access needs and evaluate uh, what those needs are in order to be able to provide them with the tools to better provide language access to our community. Our next goal 14 here, I'm gonna highlight objective 14.2, the city leadership program, also known as the Kirkland Initiative, which is an eight week civics curriculum developed by staff from every department in the city. Um, we had Commissioner Hamilton and Commissioner Lopez participate on our first group. Um, and it, it was just very fun and very successful. And uh, currently um, we are looking to set the dates for next year's uh, Kirkland Initiative um, as we are planning to provide this uh, program annually. And now um, goal 15, um, here I'm highlighting Objective 15.5, host, sponsor, and support uh, DEIB learning opportunities. There were two very special events that the city sponsored and supported earlier this year. Um, one was Juneteenth, a regional event now annually hosted at Juanita Beach Park. And uh, we also hosted for the first time in Kirkland, the Africans on the East Side Fashion Show, which we hope becomes an annual event. Uh, both events were learning opportunities and they were rich in culture and history. 
Uh, this fall, we're also hosting, sponsoring, and supporting two other DIB learning opportunities. Um, the one coming up this coming weekend is um, through Livable Kirkland. And um, we're going to be hosting the History of Exclusion Kirkland edition. It's this Saturday, December 2nd from 1 to 2.30 p.m. at the Peter Kirk Community Center. And um, the historian that will be leading the discussion is Lorraine uh, McConaughey. And I will be there and I'll be facilitating the session. Um, next month in December, we're also hosting, sponsoring, and supporting Pride Across the Bridge on their LGBTQIA plus community holiday potluck that will be held on Saturday, December 16th from 6 to 8 p.m. also at the P Peter Kirk Community Center. And now we're moving into goal area six, facility and system improvements. Here, I'm going to briefly focus on objective 16.2, community participation compensation policy. Uh, the goal of this objective is to decrease um, unintended barriers to participation that exist for some community members based on their social, cultural, ethnic, economic, and or historical experiences. And so the CMO drafted a compensation policy um, that is currently being reviewed internally. And um, it was our, our objective actually um, came out in an article that was posted by the Municipal Research and Service Center. And they are a nonprofit organization that helps local governments across the state of Washington better serve their communities by providing legal and policy guidance on any topic. And so they picked up on this particular objective and they wrote an article. And so I've been talking to different people across the United States um, since this past summer about our draft policy. And so there's a lot of interest around um, this topic nationwide. And then next, uh, goal 17, uh, I'm going to turn your attention to objective 17.1 and 17.2. Staff in different departments have been working to standardize data sources that now we can implement into the CIP equity impact assessment tool. Um, this, part this tool is a GIS formatted tool in form of a map. And so you are able to um, click through the map and be able to get different demographic information, um, as well as other information. Uh, for example, we are trying to overlay currently information on tribal lands. And then from, as, as an example, um, we had somebody from planning that was conducting a study on the tree canopy count here in Kirkland. And so we're going to also overlay um, this type of data so that we have this centralized um, GIS mapping tool that can be used across the organization. Um, this The first iteration of this tool, it was completed a year ago by the finance and IT GIS teams. And then, um, as I mentioned, we have been um, meeting. We reconvened to expand the tool um, for use internal and external data sources. 
on the slide, um, you can see the new face of our ITGIS team uh, has updated on the map and we will continue to work on this tool. And the tool is actually gonna be implemented in um, as a resource on our equity impact assessment tool. And then here's our last goal area, 18. Um, I'm not gonna highlight anything here just to allow us a few minutes um, to move on from the, the objective highlights. Um, and now I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about the priorities for um, the last quarter of this year. I mentioned earlier that our DIB team um, is the liaison to the library board and the cultural arts commission. And so we're gonna continue um, DIB efforts uh, through both of these uh, groups. And then here, um, here I'm highlighting um, the next steps on evaluating the roadmap um, there are several objectives, and I think I, I explained a little bit about this at the beginning of the presentation, that there are several objectives that have been completed. As an example of something that's finalized and completed would be, for example, the language, I'm sorry, not the language access plan, the native um, land acknowledgement. And so we've completed that piece. There's no further work. So as part of the evaluation, we would deem that complete and then remove it for the next iteration of the roadmap. But then, as I mentioned, there are certain um, objectives in which the action um, item called for a just kind of like the beginning of the work of what is possible through what we can do for that specific objective. And so from there, the evaluation would take us to what's the next step. Um, I mentioned earlier that our roadmap is organized uh, goal area, goal objective, and action items. And so the evaluation would add or modify to the roadmap only in the objective and or the action item. But the areas of the main goal areas and goals, those would they're not going to change just because those were established to ensure that the work would be organization wide. So with that, I'm going to pause and see if there are any comments and questions. And um, like I said, I'm I, I'm going to drop our memo that we used for our updates to council. And so if you're interested in, in looking up an objective that I didn't cover, um, they're all there. The descriptions are, are brief as well, but they provide a little more description than what I was able to provide within the, the time that we have today. And if there's special interest on our part, on a particular objective, I'll be more than happy to return and, and discuss that. Questions? Sri? Hi, Erica, thank you for that excellent presentation. But uh, 
so much progress. It's great, great to see that. And I, I do have to commend the overall plan. I thought it's a really excellent plan with the objectives and stuff. So looking forward to some clarity on the action items, like you said, I think that would be really helpful. Um, one of the questions for me when I was looking through all of that is, you know, when it goes to inclusion, is that the biggest, I think one of the biggest um, things is, you know, compensation is great, but it's really about a lot of people don't have the time or the ability to come and attend meetings and provide feedback and stuff. And so part, I think one of my uh, questions is how can we change the way we interact with the community? How can we go and meet the community, maybe do engagements? I mean, the events are great, but like I'm kind of I really talk to the community about the plans, the updates, what their needs are, and really, you know, get their feedback directly because I feel like there's a lot of community voices that the more we can do to hear them, the better. So I just wanted to understand, you know, from an inclusion point of view, what are the thoughts in terms of how do we really revamp the way we engage with the community and do, you know, in terms of getting their feedback and input? Absolutely. That's a great question. And I think um, throughout the year that I've been here, I've thought a lot about that because walking into the position and having my first one-on-ones with city council, there was some of them that right away asked me if I was going to put together a DIB board or commission. And um, at the time being uh, brand new, I thought it was a great idea. But as I started to um, engage with the community and community partners and staff and learning um, more about how, how geographically our communities sit in Kirkland, I, I started to realize that we don't really have a centralized physical place where different cultural groups can convene. And, um, we started to talk about what it would look like for us to be able to provide opportunities, not by providing necessarily a physical place, but providing just an opportunity like a, a date and time where we could meet people and um, and in that way be in touch with the community to start off. And then again, as I continued on the process of getting to know the the community and hearing from different um, residents, I realized that we even had to take a step further back and um, actually build community because even if we had a, a place to convene, currently there's really not a lot of, um, a lot of people that really know each other as as members of cultural groups within our neighborhoods. And I see that a lot in participating with our different neighborhood um, groups. And so um, what we decided was that instead of forming something formal like a commission uh, or a board where we have set dates with set agendas and um, it, it's just really formal that we wanted to build something that was more um, that that felt more more community based, more organic. And so we want to start building community by providing um, community dinners. 
And it had been our hope that we were going to start these dinners um, after our city hall event in early September. But um, as we started to look at planning and and the calendar, we realized that the holiday season was going to get in the way. And even if we got the smallest amount of momentum going, we might lose that momentum with those people that attend um, around the holiday season. So now we're planning for that um, starting early next year. And so we want to just invite the community to come have dinner, not have an agenda, not have an ask for them, and just start meeting organically and getting to know each other. And then from there, if there's interest on a, on a specific topic, then we can bring in those topics to a group of of neighbors, of residents that are interested in that particular topic and not necessarily because they're formally part of a commission um, or, or board. And so that's that's where we're at. Um, last night, I participated at the Black Community Advisory, I'm sorry, Black Community Police Advisory Committee. And um, we have such low turnout and even though we know that um, our our Black community members have interest in talking about topics and issues and challenges with, with police, um, they're really not coming. And so we were talking about this same strategy to open up um, trust and have people um, not come and talk about policing but just kind of build community and from there asking them if they would be interested. Um, Within the small group that we had last night, we have people that feel comfortable and are very eager to, to talk about different issues with PD. And then there's others that don't. And so um, we think that if we're able to open up, um, I'm getting a reminder from Annie that I'm going over my time. Um, So I'm just going to wrap that up. I hope I answered your question. And if I didn't and you want to talk, I'll also provide my contact information on the chat and and we can connect. We can have coffee or something. Thank you. That was very, I just wanted to add that I, I am a big fan of organic events rather than more commissions and boards. So I definitely am in definitely like those ideas, but I do feel like this may be even a deeper topic for the uh, commission overall to maybe have a follow-up on to potentially. So that's just something I'm going to plant out there. Well, if you have ideas too, I'd love to hear them. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. I really appreciate it. You giving me the time. Likewise, Erica, thank you so much. Have a good night. Thank I, you. So sorry, Gabby has her hand up. So I oh. wanted to give her a chance to ask a question if she had one. Well, I have several, but I know that we are short on time. <laughs> um, we, we can do a few more minutes. Okay. Well, Minus maybe five. this is something that maybe we can continue talking in the future, but maybe my the main question I have here is how do we get more involvement of the DEIV team 
with this commission and the work that we do, especially that we are, you know, focusing on um, being more DEIB focused as a commission in the work that we do to do um, um, to be more conscious of this and and how do we get more involved with the word of DEIB? DEIB, I'm terrible with spelling DEIB. Because I, I think there should be a lot of uh, work and, and communication between us. And maybe maybe we are not part of any objectives today, but I know that you mentioned that you are already working with the Arts or Cultural Commission or another commission. So I don't know if there's any chance in the future for us to have more conversations like this and, and expressing uh, our ideas and, or also how you can uh, guide us in, in these efforts in our commission. Absolutely. And and so when I'm talking about the library board and the cultural arts, those are actually my responsibilities. So I'm the main city liaison for those two commissions. But I actually um I work with different I I'm I'm working closely with um the senior council. And for example, I talked about my involvement with the salary commission. I attend all of their meetings and um, I'm invited like you invited me here today. And so we can definitely um, talk about those opportunities. You can invite me to your meetings or um, I, I don't know how Jen would like to facilitate that, but maybe we can talk about opportunities um, to engage more. But I, I'm here for you, and all you have to do is um, invite me to your meeting, or I don't know how else we could maybe host a special meeting on a specific topic and kind of um, brainstorm or, or um, you know, depending on what topics of interest you have, um, be able to connect that way. Thank you. And maybe one of the topics that I would like to lay on the table if it is. I mean, I might. Do I have time to to do it, Jen? Thank no. you. Uh, no. For me, uh, it's very important the language access um, part that you were talking about because I know the city is making a huge effort trying to provide more uh, language access. For instance, for all the surveys that are thrown out to the city, I still I, I still think we need to work a lot out more on outreach, like Siram says, and in more organic way. But also language access is, a, it's, I think, a, a huge wall uh, that prevents us to build more relationships with the community that will not be able to participate in anything and is historically not able to participate in anything that the city is building because of that language barrier. Absolutely. I agree with you. Um, and um, for those of you that don't, don't know a lot about me. My first language is Spanish. And so uh, language access is dear to my heart. Um, the reason why the work there seems to be going slow, it's just that internally underneath it, it gets very complicated. And so coming into um, the work, I, I didn't even I didn't even know who was managing our language access contract, or even if we had one. All I knew is that the some of the staff was using um, a service called Language Line, 
But other than that, um, I've had to kind of um, visit with a lot of staff across the organization. Um, we've built a contract with Language Line, but there was no training for staff. Um, so staff currently doesn't know the the about the contract, what the contract entails, and what services are provided for them. And so in building the language access plan, I I've divided the work into three main parts. The first part is the easy part, explaining what language access is, um, you know, talking about different definitions and um, defining language access, not only making language access about different languages, but, you know, there's the, the disability piece to it. And then there's also just making even the English language more accessible uh, because we'll, we'll start talking in acronyms or just the way that we write documents that are meant for the community to engage with are sometimes really not that user friendly. Um, and so that that's the first part. The next part is the evaluation of how we're currently providing language access. And so that's the piece I talked about today. We uh, just finished the draft of the survey that's going to go out to staff. And um, I, I do need to meet with HR and finance because they're both uh, partners, department partners in this particular objective. And then I need to take that survey out to the directors. And then once I have their input, I want to roll out that first piece of the language access with the survey. Once we get the survey back and we know currently how we're providing language, those that are providing language access, um, then we're going to work on the second part and say, this is where we see deficiencies. And these are the types of resources and tools that, um, that we need. And then the last part would be to um, be able to provide um, those resources and tools. And of course, there has to be training for our staff within each piece of, of those three elements that I talked about. And then besides that, then there's also those other objectives that dovetail into it, like identifying staff that would that speak um, other languages that would like to provide those services and actually get getting them to um, take a, um, a like a not not a formal certification, but a, a, an exam so that we can prove to our residents that this person trying to assist them indeed are fluent. And um, and so anyhow, there's just different components that I've been trying to piece together um, around the other work. But I'm I'm right there with you, um, Commissioner Lopez. It's it's definitely needed. And um, there are many staff that are trying to provide th those services with um, little to no training or resources and tools. Thank you, Erica. Thank you. Great questions. So I look forward to uh, folks reaching out to you, connecting, uh, and figuring out how we can work together more with the DEIB. Oh, I'm doing it too. Uh, DEIB team. And uh, thank you again.
Thank you. I'm going to drop that information I said on the chat and then uh, we'll reconvene to talk DIB at another time. Thank you, everyone. Have a great evening. Thank you. Thank you. The business item for this evening is discussing the December meeting and finalizing the 2024 meeting calendar. I am going to pass it to staff to lead us through the survey results and discussion. Thanks, Jory. So I will make this very brief in the interest of time um, and all of the kind of fine-tuned details is in the packet um, that was sent out to folks. But we sent out a survey to the commission following the October meeting, um, kind of a continuation of the conversation that we had to kind of see from commissioners' perspectives your interest in in-person versus virtual and then heading into the grant application review season, kind of getting a sense of do we want to meet less frequently but meet for a longer period of time, meet more frequently for shorter periods of time. And so thanks to all of you who did complete the survey. Um, Y'all made it really easy um, for those that did provide comments because it was almost in total alignment. So the calendar that was included in the memo um, does reveal the comments overwhelmingly from the commission. So we heard from folks that you overall did want to continue to meet virtually with the exception of having in-person meetings each quarter. There was one commissioner that shared comments around um, wanting to prioritize in-person meetings for more important discussions related to the grant review process. So when we're talking about establishing priorities, when we're finalizing recommendations, prioritizing those meetings to be in person, they think um, it'd be better to kind of create a space to have really intentional conversation. And then the meetings where we're really getting into the nitty gritty and the applications, being able to do that remotely. So that suggested calendar that you have in your packets does reflect those preferences. Uh, one thing I will note um, that I did find interesting is in the October meeting, um, overwhelmingly folks said that they wanted to meet more frequently and meet for um, a fewer kind of chunk of time. But the survey results actually said the opposite of that. So that was really the only piece that gave me a little bit of pause and just wanting to come back to this group before we finalize the 2024 calendar to make sure that is what the commission wants to do. Um, so as you'll see, kind of the bulk of the summer has the commission meeting twice a month for three hour blocks at a time. So one of the things that we talked about at last month's meeting was if we do do three hour blocks, we will most likely build in a break in the middle because I will need it and I anticipate all of you will need it. So um, I do think that that is a critical piece in just being able to stay focused and um, being mindful and making sure each application gets the proper attention that it needs for discussion. Um, the other thing that I will highlight is we are going to finalize this calendar after tonight's meeting. That doesn't mean that we may not need to make adjustments next year based on application volume, based on kind of where we're at in the process. So we do always try to wrap up application review and finalize recommendations because those have to go to council in the fall. 
So we do have a very clear deadline um, of trying to finish up the recommendations by September. So depending on how far we are, we may need to add a meeting, we can shorten a meeting, we may be able to cancel a meeting, but did want to just highlight that, that we are going to finalize this, but that doesn't mean that there may not be changes. Annie. Your sound is still not working. I can hear you, but they can't. <laughs> Trisha's um, going to share that we do have to public notice all of these meetings, so we do try to avoid making any changes because it's pretty intensive on staff to make sure we do that in a timely manner. So any questions, comments, or concerns from the calendar that was included in the packet? Did that include the, the, the meeting for December? I, I just recalled the I just recalled that the next year's it does not include so the meeting for December of 2024, next month's meeting. Yes. Yes, it's is that that is that is not part of, of the, the package, right? Correct. Yeah. We'll talk about that once we've wrapped okay. up that. Okay. We'll go ahead and move forward to finalize that. Um, if you have any additional questions, feel free to reach out to us. Um, we appreciate everyone that participated in the survey. Oh, Shree. Quick question. Yes. So I have a little bit of a concern about the city council meeting being April because I don't, I worry that we'll have our priorities and stuff figured out or we think we figured it out and then we talk to them and we kind of have to rejigger a bunch of stuff. So, so I, I just wanted to kind of bring that up to say, okay, is that, is there reason for concern? Is it okay from a timing point of view, not that big a deal. So just people who've been through it before, I just wanted to kind of throw that out and ask a question. Yeah. So based on the issues that this group had identified at wanting to discuss, I think it's still at that point you can share what your priorities are. Normally, council does not provide direction on what the priorities are. They just receive what they are from the commission. I think the larger question is around the funding and if they still want this body to prepare funding recommendations in the same way that they've done in the past. Um, so putting together the option A, the option B, the option C, which would activate additional one-time funding or if they want to, if they want the commission to structure it differently. So we'll still have a chance for you to talk about what your priorities are. And I actually think there's better opportunity to connect. Here are the groups that we invited in. Here's what we learned. This is why the priorities are what they are. And then they can ask questions, which will help them further understand when they receive the recommendations later in the year. Okay. Um, are the other question is by this time would we would all the grants be in the system or it's still open at this point in in april they, 
they will still be open. They'll still be open. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thank you. All righty. Do we have any commissioner reports? Sorry, one more thing, Jory. So the December 2023 meeting. Um, so with how it kind of falls with our regular cadence, it falls right around the holiday, um, which we anticipate a lot of folks are traveling or want to be with friends and family versus in a commission meeting. So um, we kind of as staff see two options. So one option is we can notice to cancel the meeting um, and not meet in December. The other option is this body could come together in person and do a more informal social gathering where you're not necessarily working through an agenda and have business, but more kind of get to know each other and build a relationship ahead of the grant application. So wanted to see if folks felt one way or the either um, if folks did want to do some sort of in-person gathering, we would recommend the Tuesday before, which would be December 19th. So I know we are over time and we're missing at least one commissioner. So if you have any initial thoughts now, either in the chat or here, let us know. And then we can also send out an email to make sure we have everyone's vote. I, I will unfortunately be traveling on the 19th. Um, so uh, even though if I was here, I'd be interested, I'd be certainly be interested in seeing everyone in person. Um, but I, I I do think that the thoughtful plan that we all have uh, from the survey and from the staff, it does include the in-person. So so um, so I, I think that's also a good mitigation um, plan as well. Okay. Thanks, Gilda. I'll just go through everyone. Okay, Sri, what are you thinking? Um, well, Where we, we need, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that I think not having any order of business I'm completely in agreement with because I do think a lot of people won't be there. I'm myself iffy. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But if we're here and just making it casual, it feels like a, I like the idea. It just... I just don't know how many people we'll have, whether it makes sense to gather, depending on how many people we have around. So I think that's the larger question, but I like the idea. Gabby. I, I was, I, I agree with she uh, about the quorum, if we are going to have quorum, because many, may, maybe some people are going to be traveling out of town or, you know, so maybe if we have quorum, I would love to meet if it is not snowing, because I am terrified of driving with snow, especially going to the city hall <laughs> that is in the up the hill. But I would love to meet. All right, uh, Christian, Chloe, uh, Commissioner Jenkins, uh, what do you think about December 19th meeting a person informal or not having a December meeting? I think what was said seems reasonable by Sri and Sri Ram and Gabby. All right, uh, Chloe, I know you might have homework uh, and Commissioner Jenkins, I know kids might be going to bed right about now. Uh, if you're able to comment on that, could you let us know? Um, yeah, I'd be fine with the December 19th meeting, but um, just kind of up to like who can attend, so. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess I could be in a follow-up email about who can attend and that would answer if we have quorum because it seems like people are open to it just as long as enough people can make it. Um, I just want to make sure, uh, Commissioner Jenkins, are you still with us right now? And Annie was saying we don't need to have quorum. If we have a quorum, we'll just notice it, which is fine. Okay. It seems like there's interest. So staff will put our heads together. We'll send an email out with kind of some proposed options and then see what we hear from the group. So as well as um, connect with commissioners who aren't here. Got it. All right. Thank you so much. Commissioner reports. Go once, going twice, go okay, staff reports. Going once, going twice. Okay, do we have a motion to adjourn? Motion to adjourn. I'll second. Right. <laughs> See you later. That was fast. <laughs> See you later. See y'all. Bye. <laughs>